The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. We've been talking uh, through, we've been working through the book of Mark, and we've been talking about how uh, Jesus came on the scene whenever he started ministry. He was a late bloomer, about 30 years old. And uh, before that, he was, uh, he was just a peasant carpenter. And so a, a lot of us, maybe we have different pictures of who Jesus is, and he's the guy, kind of guy that kind of floats around. He has the creepy smile, or he's the guy that has the, the picture that you see, like, um, you know, he's kind of blonde hair, blue eyes, like, looks like he's, uh, you know, from an old cover, really, really old cover of ancient GQ, um, like, very American looking, but uh, he, would, he actually would have been Jewish. He would have not been blonde hair, blue eyes. He would have been, a, he was a carpenter, and so he would have had calloused hands. He would have had, uh, he would have had worked hard. He would have known hard, difficult life. Life wasn't handed to him on a platter. He had to work hard. They were poor. They didn't have a lot of money. Uh, he, know, he knew struggles. And so when he turns 30 years old, God calls him to go into ministry. Uh, the Holy Spirit baptizes him with power, and he leaves there, and like, just things start going crazy. He starts to, people start to get healed and delivered and all kinds of crazy things going on, and he gets a, a, a big following that are coming after him. There's big crowds that follow around him all around the Sea of Galilee so far, where his ministry is kind of... Uh, kind of uh, centered around. And, and in the middle of that, so we've talked about how there was this group of Pharisees or, or Jewish leaders who kind of observed Jesus from the outside. And, and they, they observed him because he wasn't following their rules. Because it, their, God had given the Jews his law and he told them, this is the way I want you to live. And then they had taken that and they, they had Instead of, instead of saying, hey, God gave us this and you know, let's try to do this and figure out that we fail and we ask God for help, like they, they set this whole structure of the, the people who are really good at keeping the laws were the really good people and the people who are really bad at keeping the laws were down at the bottom. And so the really good people who had power and authority because of their goodness, because of their obedience or seeming obedience, outside obedience, uh, that their heart was... Messed up, but we won't, won't go into that this morning. The, the, the people had an outside obedience. Jesus came and threatened their power structure because, because, they, because he was saying, hey, I'm God. I'm showing, up, I'm showing up to tell you that you haven't done a very good job at keeping my law. And the reason that you have is because you are messed up and broken in the very core of who you are. And you need somebody to come and save you from your sin. So that threatened them. Then there's a great big crowd that's following him all, all around. And they're following him because of what he offers them. Because he, it was an incredible show to follow Jesus. People are getting healed. People, getting, people who were demonically oppressed are getting delivered. We're going to look at that today in a little bit of detail. And so the great big crowds are following around, him around the Sea of Galilee because of what he offers them. Because of the show that he puts on for them. And then there's a, another group of people that are disciples. They're the people that are following Jesus, not because of what he offers them, but because of who he is. Because they saw intrinsic in who he was that he was somebody to be followed. He was, the, he was the king who had returned. And if he's the king who's returned, then he is worthy of my obedience. He's worthy of me following him. And he's a God that I can, he's a God that I can worship. I have, can never figure this out, guys. One day I will, maybe. Um, and... and 
into that, he calls the disciples into this relationship where he is systematically and intentionally discipling them. He's leading them away from who they have been into a whole new, a whole new way of life. And so we saw that last week as they get on the Sea of Galilee and they start to go across and a great big storm comes up and 11 out of the 12 disciples were, or the apostles, 12 of the, 11 out of the 12 apostles, he had a lot more disciples than that, but not a big crowd. 11 out of the 12 apostles were fishermen, and they were on the sea. That's their, their territory. It's their deal. And the storm comes up. It threatens them. They think they're going to die. And he comes in at the end, and he says, when they end up waking them up at the bottom of the boat, and he says, why do you have so little faith? And it's kind of a silly question we talked about last week, because obviously they should have, like, they were, they were fretting because the storm was going to take them down. They knew it. It was their territory. They knew what the sea was like, and they knew this was the kind of storm that you'd die in if you were on the water. And yet, he said, you should have faith because I am here with you. He was showing how they placed their trust in something else other than him. And that instead of looking at the untamable power of the storm, they should have been looking at the untamable power, the unquenchable love of the one who was with them in the boat. So they get to the other side of the sea, and... That's what we're going to deal with this morning, this idea, as, as Jesus gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, that they come face to face with evil. They come face to face with evil, and we're going to see uh, what Jesus does whenever he comes face to face with evil, that, that we see that evil destroys mercilessly, but Jesus came to destroy mercifully evil. Evil destroys mercilessly, but Jesus came to destroy evil. Let's look at Mark chapter 5 and verse 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter today, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep us on track. I have made a deal with myself that I won't, I don't, that we're, going to, we're going to stay on track today. Let's read Mark verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. We're going to look at how Jesus has... Uh, Two different encounters with three different people when he comes face to face with evil. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. It's easy to read short little accounts like this in the Bible. And maybe if you grew up in church, you've heard this story many times. Or maybe if you don't have a much of a church background, you just read it and it sounds kind of like a myth to you. But imagine this man. What his life had been like to this point to get him here. I mean, this is the bottom of the barrel, right? But as, as much as it sounds like kind of a fable, like he's breaking shackles and chains, like how many people have you run across in your lifetime who've, they've hit the bottom? And their life is, is, is totally, totally, totally messed up. You met them in a the street, you, met, you ran across them somewhere, and their life has been turned upside down. It didn't just happen overnight, it happened over time, over time, over time, where this man, who knows? I mean, at one point, he may have lived a normal life. He doesn't tell us about his background. But it got to a point where he was, he was totally off the reservation. 
Uh, Look at verse 21. We're going to come back to that. We're going to look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little, my little daughter, listen to the wording, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Think of that. If any of you guys in here are parents, think of what it would mean if your child is sick to the point of death. Like you know, my child is getting ready to die. It's not something I even want to think about. Like to picture one of, my ch- one of my children getting sick or getting injured or something happening, getting them to that point. Ever seen how desperate a person is at that kind of point? How heartbroken they are? How long has she been sick? We don't know. It kind of, might have come on fast. It might have come on over a long period of time. But his daughter, his little daughter, listen to the wording, my little daughter is sick. He they don't have any other hope. He has come to Jesus to ask him, can you heal her? And he has confidence. He's saying, if you will just come and you will lay your hand on her. Maybe he's heard stories. Maybe he's met Jesus. Maybe he's seen some of the miracles. We don't know. But for some reason, he has faith to believe that if Jesus just comes and shows up and lays his hand on his daughter, his little precious daughter who's about to die, that she will be all right. And let's look. Let's go on. When, when he went with, and he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So everybody's pressing into Jesus. They're trying to get close to him. Jesus, you ever try to, try to get through a crowd and it's very difficult? He's trying, to, he's trying to get through. They're pressing in around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered under many physicians and had spent all that she had it was no better, but rather grew worse. She spent all the money she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. It, this woman in, uh, in uh, the Jewish culture, if uh, whenever you had your, your, your womanly time, you were considered unclean. I know this is kind of uncomfortable, but we got to talk about this. Uh, so just bear with me. I'm not any more comfortable talking about it than you are sitting here listening to it. So let's just all like, yeah, so it, for that time, for a woman, Armand's like, careful, careful, Randy. Don't, yeah, I understand. I'm walking a fine line here. So this woman, it, it, when you're at the womanly time of that time, then you were considered unclean. By Jewish law, nobody could touch you without them becoming then unclean. And then you had to wait seven days after your time was over before you would be clean again. And so nobody would want to touch you or be around you during that time. But if you were always bleeding as a woman, then you were always unclean. Nobody wanted to be around you. Nobody wanted to touch you. Your friends wouldn't want to come over for 
for tea or to watch a movie. You're nobody, your kids or any, any friends, any neighbors, they would stay away from you. Anybody that you would come into contact with would, give, would stay away from you. So not only has she had these physical issues going on, but she is ostracized from the rest of society around her. And then she has spent everything that she has. Think about it, if you're in that, if you're in that state. If you're, you're sick, you, people, you're lonely, you're alone, nobody will be around you, and you spend all the money that you have. You've given the doctors every single last cent that you have, and they cannot stop it. They cannot slow it down. It's only getting worse with every passing day. And you hear about this teacher who's walking around, and people are getting healed. And see, she wouldn't normally want to be seen in society. Society wouldn't want to be around her. And she certainly would not go and touch the teacher, a rabbi, a Jewish leader. You would not want to be touched by her. You would be total arm's length away from her. And yet she's coming with this plan. I'm going to sneak through. I've got to get to Jesus. There's something that, uh, that we see, first of all, in all of these in all of these three encounters with the, the demoniac that's, on, that's uh, hanging around in the tombs and Jairus who's coming to Jesus with his sick little daughter and with this woman who's been bleeding. We see in all three of these instances, number one, we see the existence of evil. I, I, I don't know if what your experience with life is, but life is full of trouble. Life is full of pain. In real life, stories rarely end happy. There's, there's, always a, there's always a tinge of sadness. There's always something that's coming out of left field. You get a, we talked about last week, you get the call from the doctor. You, you, you get a call from the policeman. Your, your husband or wife sits down and wants to have a difficult conversation with you. The person you thought you were going to marry, it doesn't work out. Your, your child isn't going the direction you wanted them to go. But something happens and it, 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 evil seems to come in. Pain and suffering is always coming in. It's always, it's always knocking us off course. And what we see here is that evil isn't just like that there's bad things that people happen to do, but that there is a force of evil. We see this man, first of all, who, who is uh, the, who we call the demoniac. And he's hanging around. We don't know how he got to the state, but he is, he is, he is demonized. He is, he is, in a very real way, he is controlled, possessed, uh, um, harassed by the forces of evil who have continually driven him further and further and further away from normal life. We see that because we say that, because it says that at one point they have been able to even bind him. Think about what had happened with his family to even get to this point. Like, I, maybe he always had trouble as a kid, we don't know, but at, at some point, like, his family, the people around him, they're saying, hey, we can't deal with him. Maybe they tried to set him up in a, a house by himself, like, you, you, you can't live with us anymore, you gotta live over here. Then he's hurting himself, he's hurting people around him, we gotta get him out of here. So you get him out of, the, out of the city, he's living alone, I don't know, maybe a shack, maybe he's homeless, he's out there, but then he's still hurting himself, he's hurting other people. People come along, they say, no, what we're gonna have to do is, because they didn't have medicines that we have, they didn't have the facilities, 
that we have in order to put people off to the side. They had to take him and they physically chained him so he would not hurt himself or other people. And then he got to a point where he would break free of those and they would chain him again. They would break free of that and they would chain him again. They'd break free of that and they would chain him again. This man is harassed. He is out of control. He's helpless. He's hopeless. The people around him, his family, maybe at one point his friends, his loved ones that have tried to help him. Now he's so far gone they can't even, they don't even recognize him anymore. He is out alone, ostracized, running around the hills, running around the tombs. Totally out of his mind. Continually, it says, hurting himself and hurting uh, and crying out. We see that there's a force of evil. There's the, there is a Satan and there are such a thing as demons. So there is this cosmic war between God and Satan that Satan hates God and he is trying to overthrow him because he wants to be God and we find ourselves in the middle of this cosmic war that's going on back and forth between the forces of evil and the force of good, which is God. So we see that there is actual force of evil. It's not just that bad things happen to happen, but there is this force that is fighting against God and is trying to derail us and take us off. And then we see in the face of that evil, we see Jesus come. A, a lot of people think, a lot of experts think that the storm that arises as Jesus crossing the sea is a demonic storm. Because of the way he talks to the storm that we covered last week and he speaks to the storm and all of a sudden it stops. It's like, it's like almost like the demonic forces sense him leaving where he was and coming over to the region of the Gerasenes and it's trying to fight him and keep him away the whole time. He calms the storm and he gets there and as soon as he gets there, this demon-possessed man runs up to him and as he, as he had Dozens and dozens and maybe hundreds of people before tried to scare him, tried to, tried to intimidate him, tried to send him away, tried to physically, if possible, conquer Jesus, keep him from coming to him. But yet, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll see how he responds differently. We see that Jesus is now on the turf of evil. He's, and when he does that, it causes the forces of evil to go crazy. So we see that, first of all, there's a force of evil that Jesus is coming against, that Jesus is coming to conquer. We've been talking about how he came on a mission, and the mission was a mission of mercy, and that mission of mercy was to conquer and destroy the forces of evil. And then we see the destructive power of evil. Look at these three stories. You have the demonic man, and we see how, we see the breadth and the depth of evil. This demonic man, we don't know his background, but he, he would be, he's, he's homeless, he's, we would consider him kind of crazy, he's talking to himself, he's yelling to himself, he's hurting himself, he's a menace to himself, and he's a menace to society. We see the breadth with him, and then we see Jairus, who it says was the leader of the local synagogue. So he was, he was like the equivalent of like an elder in his local synagogue, he would have been super well respected. He would have, he would have had a prominence in his community. He, was, he, was, uh, he would have had it together. And we can even see evil come to his house. His little daughter is sick and she's going to die. And then we see the breadth of it again in this woman who would have been looked at differently in society already being a woman in this time. They were considered... Uh, slightly above chattel at this time. But then for her to not only be a woman, but then for her to be, to have the issue that she had, she was considered unclean and dirty 
wanted far away. So we see this poor woman who's now spent all her money. She's a woman and she's poor and she's bleeding. So she would have been considered unclean. We see Jairus, whose daughter is sick to the point of death. And we see the demoniac. We see the evil hitting. We see how the breadth of evil. Evil visits all of us. Our lives may look clean and nice. Our lives may look like a mess, but evil visits all of us. There's a force, it has a power, it has an enemy. The enemy is God, and we find ourselves as people created in the image of God. We find ourselves caught in between. We see the breadth of evil, all types of people in all types of ways. So this man, we don't know how he started out, but he, he was progressively getting worse and worse and worse, crazier and crazier and crazier, cutting himself, yelling. And nobody can stop him. He has almost superhuman strength that's afforded to him as he continues to go off the deep end. And then we see this little girl who one day was playing with her friends, playing with her brothers and sisters, and then she gets sick, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and now she's gonna die. And then we see this woman who suffered for 12 years and spent all that she had. It, evil affects all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, and then we see the depth of evil. We see the depth of evil, and then we see, we see that, that sometimes it comes from outside of us, like this, this girl, she gets sick and she looks like she's going to die. It doesn't look like she did anything to deserve it. It's just something that happened to her. How many of you guys, maybe you've experienced or you're somebody that's close to you has experienced that phone call. There's cancer, there's a sickness, there's this issue, and it comes from outside. You don't, you don't know, like, you didn't do anything to necessarily deserve it. You just, it just happen. There's this force of evil that comes from outside of us that afflicts us. And then we see this woman, the same thing. She, she gets sick. And then we see that not only the, how the different ways that it comes, we see, we see how this man, the demoniac, he's, he's sick from the inside. He's sick mentally. There's, there's issues that are going on deep inside him mentally. We see it affecting him mentally. We see it affecting the, the girl and the woman physically. It, it affects all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, and it affects us all the way to the core. But then let's look at, um, let's read the, their encounter with Jesus whenever they come and meet with him. Verse 6 of chapter 5, and when they saw Jesus from afar, when he saw Jesus from afar, that's the demoniac, so Jesus lands, he lands on, the, on, uh, on dry land, he gets out of the boat, immediately this man runs up to him and falls down before him, fell down before him, and crying with a loud voice, he said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Which is very interesting because this area that Jesus was in when he landed on this area, it was a majority, it was a Gentile area. So they weren't Jews, they weren't necessarily worshipers of, of God, the majority of them. And so this man runs up who is a demoniac. He's been yelling, running around crazy. People don't even have, probably don't even think he has any idea what day of the week it is or what month it is or what, what time of year it is, how old he is, his own name. But yet he sees Jesus and he runs up to him and he falls down before him. And the wording there has to do with like, as you would fall down before a king. 
As you would fall down and kiss the feet of a, of a king, and you would, you would worship him, you're paying him homage. This, 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 this demoniac man, he runs up to Jesus, it looks like he's approaching him like he has dozens and hundreds of people to intimidate them, scare them away, hurt them, maul them, maim them, maim them in some way. He runs up to Jesus and he falls down on his feet and he acknowledges him, not only as the son of God, but he says son of the most high God. So he is a Gentile, a, a non-Jew who would worship many gods. They, they would be polytheistic in this area. They worship many gods. He is recognizing Jesus is not, is not only the son of God, so he's God himself, but he's saying you're the son of the most high God who is above all other gods. I adjure you by God not to torment me. So we see Jesus is coming that even this man and the demons that are oppressing and destroying this man's mind and his life, they recognize that Jesus is authority. For, for he, that's Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What we're going to see with Jesus in all of these situations is that this man, not only was he crazy and nobody would want to be around him because he could, it was hurting himself, he would hurt you, but he also was hanging around the tombs. And in Jewish culture, any person who hung around the tombs, that was, if you touched a tomb, you were considered unclean. So you see this man who was crazy, nobody would want to be around him, he was going to hurt, maim anybody that got around him. He was also, he was also ceremonially unclean. We see the the woman with the issue of blood, this woman who's been bleeding, she would have been considered unclean. And then whenever he comes and he actually meets Jairus' daughter, we'll see in a second, she was unclean as well. And we see Jesus who was willing to leave the comfortable and to engage with those who are unclean and who are broken, who are maimed. This man, we don't know like, how he got to this point, but we, know, well, we see that he has self-destructive behaviors. And it was probably self-destructive behaviors that led him down this path. But Jesus doesn't come to people who are messed up and broken because of self-destructive decisions, because of decisions that were bad decisions, and say, hey, you, are, you lie in the bed that you made. He comes to people who are, have even made horrendous, self-destructive decisions. And he says, I will meet you where you are, and I will deliver you and pull you out. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, which is the word for a, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the troop size of Roman army. Somewhere between, it, it changed as, the, the number changed through the years, but if somewhere between 1,200 and up to 8,000 soldiers would be in a Roman legion. So there, his response to Jesus, or the demons oppressing him saying, see he's even lost his identity, he doesn't know who he is anymore. He's so identified with evil. He says we are legion. No, that doesn't mean there's an exact number. It just means there's a bunch of us in here. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, this is a weird story, guys. 
And it's getting ready to get even weirder. So not only does this man who it's saying is a demoniac, and so that's kind of weird to a, our modern American idea of somebody running around who's demon-possessed, but, but is it? I, I find this interesting that in an increasingly secular society, so America is increasingly secular. It's not a Christian nation anymore. A majority of people don't identify with Judeo-Christian values anymore. And yet they keep releasing these movies that are about demons, about demon-possessed people. You see that I, I'm, not a big, uh, I'm not a big scary movie guy. I, they, they totally freak me out, so I, I, can't, I can't watch it. Uh, Dale isn't either. Maybe some of you guys are. And I, but I see the ads, and you see, like, the woman, and she's sitting there, and, and then, like, like her face changes to a demon, or you, or you see like a hand like r- running around inside her her, her body, like you know, just like crazy, like things stick out, like uh. But 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 we we they keep making them, and people keep watching them. Why? We have some fascination, some idea that there is such a thing as a force of evil, and there is such a force a thing as a force of evil that can that can overcome and overwhelm somebody's personality so much that it changes it. Uh, the, the idea of people being demon-possessed actually isn't, isn't uh, relegated to Christianity or Judaism. Uh, there, there are ancient, like very, very, very ancient uh, manuscripts uh, from Egypt and from Greece where it gave instructions on how to do an exorcism because they had people in society that were depressed, oppressed, possessed by demons. But this... That sounds, like, that sounds weird to us Americans, but it gets even weirder. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they, that's the demons, begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. I don't have a lot of comment on them. It, that, it's, just, it's just weird. And we don't really know, this. there's no other precedent for this. In fact, that's one reason that uh, most commentators, most experts believe that this story isn't made up and added later on because there's no precedence for this in literature. There's no idea before this in literature of demons leaving humans and then going to pigs or other kind of animals. But, but, but this is interesting that what kind of animal does it say that there was a great herd of around? Pigs, and what were pigs to Jews? Nasty, unclean. You weren't even supposed to, not only were you not supposed to eat pig, which by the way, I was at Dale's house last night, we had some barbecue, and you know, man, they missed out on that part, but they weren't even supposed to eat pig. I know it was God's commandment, but they, they missed out. I think God, I'm on this side, because it was good. Um, but they, they weren't supposed to eat pig, but you weren't supposed to be around pigs. You weren't supposed to touch them. There were supposed to be herds of pigs around. It, it was totally unclean, totally unheard. So Jesus shows up, not only in a region, uh, not only to see a man who was unclean, in an area that's unclean, he's among the tombs. But we see this whole region is sort of an unclean region that a well-respected Jew wouldn't want to go to. Jesus is going to the wrong side of the tracks. So the people, not only is he around pigs, but he's around people who are making their money from the sale of swine. And they would have been considered like 
I mean, you would, a Jew would never, ever be around them, much less talk to them. So they begged, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. Uh, we don't understand the story, we don't know all the details of it, but what we see here is we see Jesus came with authority. And he gave them permission. They could not do anything. They had conquered this man. They had driven him crazy. He was running through the, through the mountains and the hillside among the tombs, cutting himself, hurting himself, breaking free of chains. He didn't even know who he was anymore. Nobody could control him. He couldn't control himself. But yet Jesus comes on the scene, and he is in absolute and utter control of the situation. He doesn't have a complicated formula. Those formulas that I told you about that we have manuscripts, they were complicated formulas and how you, how you committed, extra, how you were able to exercise an exorcism on somebody. They were, they were super long, super detailed, all kinds of crazy things you had to do. You know, the right moon had to be out. You had to have the right ingredients. You had to say the right thing. You had to do this. You had to be here. You had to be there. All Jesus has is he just has to show up. And he says, go out. They don't have a choice. And he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. That's kind of crazy. But also what we see here, there's no commentary that Mark makes about this. But 2,000 swine, 2,000 pigs, would be a lot of money. And Jesus doesn't think, as far as we can see, a second thought that the life of this one man who was crazy and ostracized, running around the hillside and the tombs, that his life is more important than a wealth of money. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city. Can you imagine how freaked out you would be? <laughs> You're sitting there with your herd of pigs, and they're smelling, and they're doing whatever. All of a sudden, the pig do. There used to be a, a, a pig, actual pigsty down the road. I told you guys, I grew up in the country, down the road from me. And that place, it smells. Pigs, pigs smell. Absolutely, they do. They're hanging around him. They're just hanging around with the pigs. And the pigs are lazy. There's not like they were, pigs don't just go running around for no, like, for, for no reason. They're, they're laying in the, in, the, in the mud and just hanging around being pigs. And all of a sudden, they go crazy. They start squealing and oinking. And they start running all in mass to the cliff. There actually is a cliff in this area on the Sea of Galilee. And they run to the cliff and dive off the cliff and drown themselves in the sea. Can you imagine what, how crazy that would be? So no doubt the, the herdsmen flee and they tell it to the city and the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Clothed and in his right mind. See, that's a picture of discipleship. When Jesus shows up and he makes you his disciple, your life will change. It may be a dramatic and an instant change like this, or it might be a gradual change over time, but your life will change. And you sit at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in your right mind. And, and look at the, the next phrase. And they were what? They were what? They were afraid. Why were they afraid? You guys can give me some feedback on this. Why were they afraid? 
No feedback? No thoughts? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it reminds me a lot of the, la- of the story that we covered last week of, of Jesus on the sea. What did it say? That the disciples were afraid that they're going to die. They're, they're freaking out. They come to Jesus and they say, don't you care? Jesus comes up, speaks to the storm. The storm stops. The waves stop immediately. And then what does it say that the disciples were? They were afraid. You know Why? Because it's much scarier to come in contact with somebody who has that kind of power, that kind of authority, and the storm that's going to kill you, and the crazy man that's running around the mountains that can't be chained. Because Jesus, when you come in contact with him, you can't control him. And... They were afraid. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Why? They had 2,000 pigs. That was a lot of money. Jesus unilaterally sends demons into the pigs. The pigs die, destroys, you know, tons and tons of money. They say, yes, it's cool that this man is now in his right mind but we'd rather you leave. We don't want you around. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had, begged, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Let me go with you, he was saying. Verse 19, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, as the ten city region that they're in, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now this is interesting because up to this point, when Jesus does miracles, most of the time afterwards he, he tells people, now don't go tell anybody what had happened. But this man, he's, he won't let him come with him. So this man is begging to come and be a disciple. He wants to come and join this church. And Jesus says, no, you cannot come. And then he says, go home and tell everybody. I think it's because it's because they had asked Jesus to leave. So Jesus said, you can have me leave, but I'm going to leave someone whose life has been changed by me here. And he's going to tell you over and over and over again. And every time you see him in the store, every time you run across him uh, at school, every time you see him in line, every time you pass him on the road, and you see him, he's clothed in his right mind, you're going to remember how he was running around the hills and how somebody showed up with the authority that you didn't have to change his life and how they cared for him and saved him and rescued him. Let's get verse down, verse 27. Look at the rest of the story of Jairus and this woman. Uh, so uh, remember that Jairus came to Jesus and he asked him, hey, come with me. My, my little daughter is dying. If you lay your hand on her, she'll be well. So then he's going. This woman who had this woman of blood, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So she risked being around people. She risked ostracism. She she risked all of that in order to come up. And not only that, but a woman would never touch a rabbi, would never touch a teacher. She came up and sneaked through the crowd. We don't know how she did it, but she came up and sneaked through the crowd and she grabs his garment, just touches it. 
For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I don't need to get him to talk to me. He won't talk to me. People ostracize me. I'm outside. I'm unclean. I understand that. But if I can just touch his garment, I will be made well. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? So there's a lot of people around. How can you say that? And he looked around to see who had done it. He had felt something had happened. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So he stops and deals this woman who was unclean, and he heals her and blesses her. And then verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can you imagine how Jairus must have felt at this point? He gets the news, your daughter has died, and the people say, don't bother him anymore. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to them, said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear only believe, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. We see that Jesus came to destroy evil. He risked encounters with uncleanness. He reached out to the marginalized and to the self-destructive. So we see the man who's self-destructive. We see the woman who'd been marginalized by evil. They come to him and they respond to him because they have no hope. Think about how the, the people in the garrisons, they said, don't get out of here, please go away. But the people who had been come to a point where they had no other hope, they came to him in desperation. So here's the question that will be done today. What causes us to respond to Jesus in the face of evil? Because we see in the story people who don't. We see people ask him to go away. But some people responded to Jesus in the face of evil, and the first reason is because of desperation. When you've, only until every option is exhausted will you approach him, because until then we want to maintain our autonomy. We want to be independent of ourselves. And we know that when we come to somebody for help, then we're placing themselves, ourselves in subjection to him. Until then, you won't want to bother or be bothered by Jesus. You come, you respond to Jesus because you're desperate. You respond to Jesus because you go to somebody who's more powerful than you for help. 
You recognize in him that he, is, that he has power. And if he is all that he says he is, and if he delivers you from evil, then you'll owe him all your life. But only when you're desperate will you fight through that. And you also want to go to somebody who will understand. Not only somebody who's powerful, because there are some people who are powerful that you, you know that if you go to for help, like they're not going to be inclined to help or their help isn't going to be what you need because they don't understand where you're coming from. But let's think for a moment as we wrap up. How could Jesus understand this demoniac, this child, and this man with this child who's dead and the woman who's bleeding? Like the demoniac, one day Jesus would be ostracized, beaten, bound outside the city. One day, like this woman, Jesus would bleed. One day, like this child, he would die. He'd be ostracized outside the city like the demoniac. He would bleed like the woman, and he would die like the girl. He would take on their pain, their hurt, the evil that came after them. He would take that himself. He would absorb it into himself. The self-destructive behaviors, the afflictions, the infirmities, and then he would die so that we might live. Evil comes, is a part of this world, it destroys our lives. Breath and death, it destroys mercilessly. It doesn't care if it's a little girl, it doesn't care if it's a helpless poor woman, it doesn't care if it's this man, it does not care. Evil comes to destroy, but Jesus came to utterly and mercifully destroy evil. So this morning as we think about that, let's respond to Jesus. Let's be like this woman, this father, and this man who, had no, who recognized they had no other hope and in desperation they come to Jesus. And if you're a believer already, it means that daily we come to him with desperation, asking for him to deliver us from what we could not be delivered from on our own. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.